Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Happy New Year to all you Sound and Vision listeners. For the first release of 2020, I wanted to reissue one of my favorite pods to date. I'm about to reach the 200th episode, and this was episode 100 with Chris Martin. I'm not sure if it's a connection with music, his amazing stories of coming to age, with some impressive friends, or just the vibe of Chris, but when you're around him, it's just one of my favorites. I cleaned up the sound a bit, and releasing it again to any of you who might have missed it the first time around. I've got some great new talks coming for you this year. If you could support the podcast, please tell a friend about it. Post a link or an image of it, share it with other friends who like art and music. It's the best way for these artists to have their stories heard. And many thanks to our supporters, the New York Studio School and Golden Artist Colors, and thanks to all you listeners. Sound and Vision is supported by the New York Studio School, where drawing, painting, and sculpture are studied in depth, debated energetically, and created with passion. The school's full-time programs, a two-year MFA degree, and a three-year certificate program focus on experimental learning and sustained studio courses. Both programs invite students to focus on painting or sculpture, with drawing as an integral foundation for the creative production. Each member begins a two-week drawing or sculpture marathon to generate momentum and expands one's range of strategies for future studio work. Since its inception, the New York Studio School has emphasized rigorous learning through direct experience. The applications for fall 2020 are due January 15th, 2020, which is coming up. Apply online today at nyss.org or schedule a tour to learn more by emailing info at nyss.org. And Sound and Vision is also supported by Golden Artist Colors, making the best paints from acrylics, mediums, Williamsburg oils, core watercolors, and much more. Check out their supplies at goldenpaints.com or at your local art store. Here's me and Chris from episode 100, talking from his studio in East Williamsburg, Brooklyn. I used to DJ in college, too. Okay. So this is your... This is your, your no, not at all. Actually, <laughs> you know what you're doing. <laughs> but I, I, I used to. I, I like sound. You know, I get into it. And I don't, I don't know too, too much about you personally. But I believe that you are also interested in music. Yes. And for some reason, uh, that was one thing that I really wanted to mind because I believe uh, there's a couple of paintings you named. I think you named one painting uh, Mamandishi like after the Herbie's group, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's that's a good leeway into. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so this the show that I just did was called Future Shock, which is partially was inspired by Curtis Mayfield, but then the Herbie Hancock record, which to me growing up was huge because oh, Rocket, right. Rocket, Rocket was a crazy Damn. video <laughs> when you're a kid listening, to, you know, and seeing that stuff. That's right, the Rocket video. Do you remember that thing with I the do. mannequin I legs? I do. It I creeped do. me out. Yeah, it was a little creepy. But it was amazing, you know. So Herbie is big for me. Yeah, Herbie's big for me. Yeah. So what's, uh, I mean, I'd like to dive right into music. Is that something you are always interested in? Uh, or are you very interested in it? Or? Uh, you know, I grew up in Washington, D.C. And um, 
so all the radio was uh, the W-O-O-L, W-O-O-K, the Boss, Wook, uh, all these great African-American uh, radio stations. Yeah. So I grew up listening to, you know, great Motown music. Like built the foundation? Uh, that built the foundation. I don't know if I ever really got away from that foundation. It's, it's hard. My dad used to always listen to Motown. That was like the only thing, well, not the only thing, but he liked rock and roll, but Motown was big. Yeah. My older brothers were, you know, I discovered Beatles and all that through them, and then rock and roll. But I think that um, Motown and then the funk, when it got to f- be funky, like Cool in the Gang, yeah. and when Curtis uh, started doing great stuff. Um, Parliament. So I am, yeah, Parliament. I'm in like high school when Shaft came out, the first movie. Mm-hmm. So um, I think a friend of mine went to a theater, the RKO Keith down by the White House. We were the only two white kids in the audience to see Shaft. <laughs> um, so Isaac Hayes was just a huge hero of yeah. mine. Um, and it was a very segregated city, uh, Washington. So. Um, you know, my education was in this very, you know, upper middle class white world. Yeah. And everybody was going off to a fancy college. <clears throat> but then the, 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 I discovered Picasso and modern art and Motown. So those two things are linked. Modernism and Motown are the, <laughs> are the two foundations. <laughs> I Free museums and a great music town. Free museums. Did you have a choice? <laughs> free museums. Right. I guess if you're if you're leaning creative, that's a pretty good environment. We were very lucky. I didn't realize that all museums weren't free all right. over the place. So then, when I got to um, college, I'm, high school, somebody gave me a Miles Davis record. They gave me Bitches Brew, and it, I couldn't hear it. I, it was too crazy for yeah. me. Uh, you got to be ready. Tenth or eleventh grade. And so then, by the time I got to college, I put it on again. Uh, having taken LSD, and it made perfect sense. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, I get it. It's incredible. What about On the Corner? Was that? Did you buy that right away? Um, I first did Bitches Brew. Um, then I did um, In a Silent Way. Mm-hmm. Uh, went backwards a little bit. Then On the Corner. Yeah. Uh, when I saw Miles live in New Haven, that would have been 70 two or three mm-hmm. it was that kind of funk yeah with i think two or three pianists and um they just came on stage and they just started playing it was kind of linear yeah it just went on for about an hour he he would come on um turn his back to the audience play i remember him coming out with a, a bloody tissue up one nostril and then go off stage, come back with a bloody... I guess they were all super coked up. Yeah. Um, but I, w- I became a real Miles kind of fanatic. So then anybody that played with Miles, I would look him up. And that's how I got to Herbie Hancock and um, I think... Um, Benny Malpin, were you into that Benny stuff? Malpin, I love Benny Malpin. Yeah. Bass clarinet, underrated. Underrated. Such great. a great instrument. I mean, I found it through Dolphy, but... You quickly, if you go down the bass clarinet wormhole, it's not too, too deep. Love Benny Malpin. <laughs> and then there was, what was the group that Herbie had uh, that was called the Headhunters? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They were really good. Um, and then Weather Report and um, Chick Corea. Um, uh, you know, all those pianists that, that were playing. Um, uh, 
and then and then weirdly enough I went back and started understanding Coltrane and you know Parker and all of that from miles backwards I didn't do it which is a circuitous route <clears throat> right which is I started with like funky jazz electric but, but jazz. you were coming of age in a time where that kind of experimentation made sense yeah right. I remember each new weather report album I remember getting these records when they first came out yeah um, and um, Billy Cobham records yeah. Lenny White um, Stanley Clark the bassist mm-hmm. Um, and did you go see all those guys play? I saw a fair amount of them. But I think, like a lot of people, my experience of music was, you know, we had record players, and then we had tape cassettes. Yeah. My sister used to make me a tape thing that she had a hooked-up thing where she strapped it. We could go skiing, mm-hmm. and she hooked up a tape player that she strapped around. Like a Walkman? Here. Yeah, like she strapped around, like early... She made it herself. Oh yeah, and um, and we used to play like Santana. It was like great, like um, ski music. Where were you skiing? Like what? Oh, this is like Catskill Mountains, little yeah. ski places. But um, so you grew up with the means to go skiing. Yes, absolutely. But you were you were exposed to parts of DC that were you know like the music scenes and like you were going to see Shaft and stuff like that I mean I was going to see the movie I was not you weren't in a you know the wrong side of the tracks I was not I was not I was a very um, sheltered kid I don't think uh, so then I went from DC to uh, Yale Mm -hmm. and um, which I never even really made a decision about it was just sort of what it was that world everyone went to some nice college now, were your parents involved in in D.C.? Is that why you were there? They were involved in D.C. socially. My father was a lawyer, mm. but they were uh, not involved in politics okay. particularly. Uh, they were conservative people. But, mm-hmm. um, but so I went from this upper-class world to Yale, and then I dropped out of Yale uh, after a couple of years. Wasn't for you? Well, I was studying art, and I was having a great time. Mm-hmm. I was uh, discovering psychedelics and uh, made some great friends. But I really was, I don't know why I had not gone to an art school. I, I wanted to be an artist and yeah. got to be friends with the grad students there. And they were all, everyone was just going to New York City. So I thought, right. well, I'll just go to New York City. And when I got to New York, as you know, my real education began. What year was that? I came to New York in 75, 76, and, um, the mean streets. Yeah, we lived on a building on Houston and Mott Street that had no locks on the front door. Yeah. And I met Glenn O'Brien, lived right down the hall. Oh, really? And the saxophonist Robert Aran became mm-hmm. a great friend. He lived also, we're all in the same hallway. And he was playing with uh, Debbie Harry and Wilson Pickett. And uh, through him, I would go to see like Mud Club stuff. Mm-hmm. And Glenn was doing all that Mud Club stuff. So I kind of tagged along around the downtown scene, but also I had never, I had never done a job in my life. I had never, um, I had no idea how to exist in the world. So I, I learned. Um, but it was at that point, it's cheap. It's super cheap. Um, dodgy. My rent was one hundred and twenty-five dollars a month. Yeah. And I had a job unloading trucks on the wholesale cut flower market. I made forty-five dollars a truck. Uh-huh. So in three nights, I, I kind of made my rent. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's hard to... I mean, it, it was great for artists. Everyone had space. 
you didn't have to work. You worked part-time, and you could buy whatever you needed to live. And at the same time, um, it was scary. Almost, I was one of the few people I knew that didn't actually get, like, uh, you know, shot or stabbed or something hit or something. You know, most yeah. people were mugged at some point or right. other. Um, I showed up. That. Yeah, I dodged <laughs> that. I mean, I showed up with a brand new pair of LP conga drums, and they were stolen within uh, six weeks. <laughs> and, <Yeah>. um, <clears throat> Par for the course. Yeah, and then the, they came back and they would break into my apartment regularly. Um, it got so they would take my marijuana and my a suit of clothes. Mm-hmm. Um, they never took my art books though, which was kind of amazing to me. Yeah. Um, not interested, (laughs) not interested. (laughs) They didn't realize it's, it's funny that it just sounds like bullying. Like they just know that you're going to have some stuff and they're just going to come take it from you whenever they want. Yes. I remember we had these little gates that they gave you in the building that was supposed to keep you safe from the fire escape, but they just pushed the gates in. And I remember taping a note. I had a friend, Pablo, a Mexican guy, and he he wrote me a note saying, you know, uh, watch out, there's a guard dog in here, whatever, in Spanish. Um, And that didn't do any good either. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Nice try. I mean, I remember once that they had come in and taken everything again, and I called the police and they actually came and I was on a six floor walk up. So these two poor cops, they walked all the way up to the top of the building and they just sat there and they were breathing heavily and they were in my studio, mm-hmm. which I had taken two little rooms in the apartment. And I had a big abstract painting there and they really liked my painting. Mm-hmm. I remember these two cops going like, Hey, you know, this is really interesting. What are you doing here? And, and what is this? And I remember the cops left and I remember thinking kind of good. You know, yeah. this, I feel really good. You know, the cops like my painting. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's no question they were going to... I guess it was enough stuff gone that it was a, over $1,000. That was a felony. The cops would come over or something. Right. I don't know. They weren't going to try to do anything. Oh, nobody right. was yeah. going to do anything. Um, <laughs> that yeah. still kind of holds true for the most part. Yeah. Someone, I, like, ran into my car, like, a few weeks ago. And just sideswiped the entire thing. Like, it looked like a tin can, like a sardine can got rolled up on it. And uh, <laughs> I called my dad and I told him about it. I was like, hey, guess what happened? And he's like, oh, what did the police say? <laughs> what did the police say? And I was like, I don't call the police. They're not going to do yeah, anything. Yeah, welcome to New York. Yeah, welcome there's, to New York. come on. They're not. <laughs> no, I, so I, I, um, I, I kind of learned about r- real life when I got to New York. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know anything i remember there was a painter friend of mine a yale graduate student named gary lang and i got to the building and i remember going downstairs to his apartment saying gary um how do you do laundry because <laughs> i realized i had never i didn't know what that was and and so and he and he walked me down the street he took me to this uh, chinese laundry place mm-hmm. a few blocks away and he said this is what you do chris you give them this and it comes back folded and i remember thinking god gary is like he's a man of the world he really wow. knows his way around he this knows place. his way around <laughs> the place um but it was uh actually that laundry mat was where i first met william burroughs um i would go there with my laundry and a couple of times he also took his suits there oh really and um that's amazing I remember, you know, introducing myself to him, Mr. Burroughs. I knew what he looked like. Yeah. 
telling him I was a big fan, and he was very courteous. Yeah. And he had this cane with him. I realized later it was his sword cane. Yeah. Um, but um, I remember, you know, just in my excitement, Bill left, and I remember talking to the old Chinese lady, going like, "That's that's you know, he's he's really great. He's a great artist." And she, she was just going like, "Yeah, he nice man. He pays good." Or something. <laughs> <laughs> it's William Burroughs. You're cleaning his suit. <laughs> so, um, uh, and I certainly learned a lot through Glenn O'Brien um, yeah. because he was uh, about five years older, and he also seemed like an incredible man of the world. Mm-hmm. And he was uh, working at Interview Magazine for Warhol, mm-hmm. and he would get these records. Piles of records were sent to him uh, every week. Promos? Uh, yeah, yeah, that he was supposed to listen to, and maybe he would write about them. And I, w- I was very, very impressed that he had that job and that he knew all these people. And um, and he was a cool guy. Um, so you had good mentors, in a way. Yes. I mean, Glenn was just too cool. I was so shy in a way so it took me a while to really um i remember he showed me jean-michel's basquiat like one of the first paintings he ever made Mm -hmm. uh glenn had had this painting car crash and um i remember him saying well what do you think of this and i I, I was this kid and i remember thinking like oh that's pretty good you know that's really pretty good and then uh jean-michel used to do all the windows in the building um and then I would see more of his work through Glenn. And then when John Michel had his first shows, then I went, oh, my God, he's so, he's so great. Right. So that's like 80, 81 when, mm-hmm. when that starts happening, 82. And you're, at this point, you're just painting in your apartment? I had an apartment. I painted in the apartment. I had um, 300 square feet, and 200 square feet was the studio, and I lived in 100 square feet. Yeah. It was one of those things where the bathtub is in the kitchen. It goes the right. stove, sink, bathtub. Let's line all that plumbing up. Yeah, <laughs> and there was. I had my refrigerator wedged against the bathtub, so you could be in the bath and open the refrigerator and get yourself a beer or something. It worked. It worked. Out That's convenient. Good. No, it worked pretty good. Um, but you pretty much at that point you were working a gig to just pay some bills or just pay. Yeah, rent. I was working on loading trucks, and then I was working occasional. Oh, I was a museum guard for a while. I was a museum guard at the Guggenheim Museum. At the Guggenheim? Yeah. How was that? Um, it was incredibly boring. I thought it was would be a great gig because you could look at paintings right. all day. But it was um, very, very boring. Yeah. Just sitting around. Yeah. I mean, I did talk to Jasper Johns. He came in to see a show once, and mm-hmm. I asked him about one of his paintings. Uh, and he kind of laughed at me, which was all right. <laughs> Um, well, you've got that story to tell now. <laughs> <laughs> I asked him something about it, and he went, I know how to paint up to an edge, and he was laughing. <laughs> um, so I did get to see some art, but then I quickly, uh, the guy was grooming me to be head guard. I remember he was, you know, because I, I could speak English, and uh, he thought this guy, he, and he, I remember him telling me, you could take over, you know, in 20 years, you'll be retired, and... Um, Pension. Pension. You can yeah. have the whole thing. And that, that really scared me. So I quit right away. <laughs> I thought, I'm going to end up as a head guard. Yeah. Um, but I j- just did part-time jobs. Because uh, yeah. that's all I needed to do. Yeah. Um, and made big paintings in the apartment. And you were meeting people through Glenn, I imagine? Through or Glenn. Through and the then scene? a lot of my, um, my best buddy, Peter Atchison, who's a wonderful artist, painter, 
he came to New York. He graduated, came to New York by 77, I think. Mm -hmm. And uh, he found him an apartment in the same building. And a guy named Bob Krause lived there, Henry Chutkowski, Gary Lang. There were a lot of painters that lived uh, in the building. Yeah. So that was great. Yeah. Uh, There was a gallery that opened right down the street called Art Galaxy, Mm -hmm. run by a woman named Barbara Flynn, and I had friends that were showing there. So I felt a little bit part of... um, Soho was uh, just really beginning to... To, to flourish. Yeah. And what, in your work, are you making large-scale abstract work? I'm making large-scale abstraction. I'm obsessed with Elizabeth Murray, early sure. paintings, yeah. and uh, Al Held, mm-hmm. and um, all the kind of serious painters that I knew were doing some kind of minimal abstraction. It was uh, Johns, Bryce Martin. Were you looking back to, to like, <clears throat> Tuttle and Feely, or, you know, like, people who are doing sort of shape-based abstraction and kind of formal stuff? Or were you were you kind of like in the here and... You know what I mean? Like how far back were you mining? Because it seems like when you grew up, you were you were knee-deep in museum. You know what I mean? In that modernism. Right. And you had a pretty good lexicon of like the stuff that came from, you know, ways back. Was that weighing in at all? Or were you kind of feeling the, the here and now of it? No, very much uh, still... Uh, obsessed with the art history of it all. Yeah. So I think by the time I showed up in New York, I was deep into abstract expressionism. I was, I had a, just piles of books. Mm-hmm. I was obsessed with de Kooning, Clifford Still. I was reading everything I could. Um, and I guess early on I had somehow aligned myself with a kind of William Blake mystical kind of that goes through Van Gogh mm-hmm. and... Um, you know Picasso, or but but more like the darker, like Albert Pinkham Ryder, right. Marston Hartley, mm-hmm. uh, Pollock kind of strain in American uh, landscape painting. Yeah, and I think that I guess I discovered abstract expressionism and psychedelics about the same time. Mm-hmm. So that was very. Uh, Eye-opening? Very eye-opening, and, <laughs> and somehow formed, <clears throat> excuse me, it somehow formed the way I looked at de Kooning and Pollock. Yeah. Or looked at all kinds of painting. Um, so I was, you know, Glenn was, I, I think back on it, I was so um, shy and kind of uh, lost in art history. And Glenn was always saying, hey, this is the latest thing. Yeah. The funny thing is that the, Serious abstract painters that I knew were very much in one camp, and Warhol and pop art was in another camp. It's like those guys didn't talk to each other. Yeah, and um, I was not a big Warhol fan. And when I came to town, he's doing like disco kind of Liza Minnelli portraits, right? And, and I was really down on it. I, I was thinking this was bad. These are those early '80s when er- the it's getting kind of saturated and glittery and yes, exactly. neon and all that. So I was not, and Glenn, you know, all the time I knew Glenn, I never said, hey, Glenn, can I come over to the factory with you? I yeah. never did. I never went, did that, didn't which I think desire. back, like, why didn't I, right. wasn't I ever curious? What do you think about it now, though? Oh, I mean, Warhol, the, I grew up in Pittsburgh. Warhol's a big... He's the man. I mean, I don't really, I think... His work is in everyone's work after Warhol, in a way. You right. know what I mean? But I don't really align myself with his aesthetic. But as a person and just growing up being surrounded by Warhol, it kind of made a 
a big impact on me. Oh, he was a genius. And um, the thing is that I think I was aware that he was a genius, but I wasn't interested in the physical facture of his paintings. Whereas people like Christopher Wool and a lot of people my age, they were looking really closely at Warhol and the use of screens and how he used screens or didn't use them. And it took me a while uh, to come back around and really examine Warhol closely. At that point, did you were you really familiar with his early drawings and the line work and the facility and a little bit, yes, yeah, a little bit. But I hadn't seen um, so many of those drawings. How right. good he was! Well, I don't think those were. Re- I mean, I don't think he was showing those at that point, right? Those were probably a little harder to come by than yes. They are now. Glenn or somebody, how did I say? There were some drawings of shoes that I had seen somewhere. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but it, it's, it, it's now so much is available to everybody. Yeah. And it's hard to believe when I talk to students how, you know, abstract painters didn't talk to Alex Katz. You know, really yeah. people were, you know, and people like Don Judd and Dick Sarah, they, they really felt they were on the correct railroad track of right. art history. Yeah. And painting was suspect, but certainly uh, you couldn't paint like a skull or something. I right. mean, that was over. Yeah. Um, after Don Judd did what he did, you couldn't go back. So those people, um, they didn't just say, I don't like your work so much. They would go, you're just, you're fraud. It's you're not wrong. valid. It's yeah, not yeah. valid. Exactly. Right. It's not valid. Yeah. Um, now, by the 80s, when Basquiat started coming out, but oh, Schnabel had a huge impact on me. Yeah. And when all of the European stuff happened, I had no idea that Polka and Baslitz and um, A.R. Pink. I had no idea that was going on until it, it hit New York in the 80s. And you thought, what the, like, this is amazing? I thought it was amazing. Yeah. And Schnabel just blew my mind. The yeah. first uh, four or five Schnabel <coughs> shows were, they just com- completely turned me around. Right. Um, and the thing is, I realized Schnabel had been to Europe, and so he knew these people, he knew he what was it. going on. Right. I had a funny thing where, <clears throat> excuse me, in the early 70s, middle 70s, some friend of my family, uh, my family, they sent this kid around from Belgium. He was he's an artist. Mm-hmm. And so we went out to lunch and he said, who are you interested in? And I said, I love Elizabeth Murray. I love Al Held. I love Bill Jensen, Noskowski. He'd never heard of any of them. And I said, well, who were you interested in? And he said, oh, there's this guy Polka, this guy Baslitz, whatever. <laughs> I'd never heard of any of them. Right. And we left going like, well, that guy's not even serious. Yeah. You know, he doesn't know anything that's going on. Right. And it was years later that we met up again, and I realized, oh, you know, he, he uh, I had no idea Europe was a different, uh, you know, if you talk to Judd, Europe was over. You know, that had, that had, had its shot. Now it was America and the new glorious... Um, abstraction so uh when schnabel and all these people came came back it was it was fantastic and there was lots of painting yeah uh which itself was under attack god to think there was a day when provincialism could maintain some sort of bubble impenetrated by other places (laughs) oh very much that is gone forever (laughs) well you know yes and no because um i i think when i when i the last few years when I get a chance to travel and you show up somewhere, you're in Paris or wherever, and you, everyone has their local heroes. Right. 
Um, but it's not... It's not the way it used to be. It's not untainted by the internet. I know. You guys can look on Instagram I mean, and go, look what happened in Japan yesterday. Exactly. I like that painting. Uh, I can align with that. Yeah. yeah, you know, like you just find that one person that's hitting on your levels and you're like, okay, this is this validates me. It's very true. No matter what true. It's Don changed. Judd says. It's like, I'm, <laughs> Bless <him. laughs> I'm painting flowers, damn it. No, when I first saw A.R. Pank, who had been a great artist since the 70s, I thought he was ripping off Keith Haring. Mm-hmm. I thought, oh, he must be some young German that's right. doing Keith Haring. Uh, little did I realize. Um, well, you must have been around when Keith was I doing did. his thing. How did you feel about that work? I was, uh, I was very envious of those guys, both Keith and, and Jean-Michel. Um, Keith, I remember seeing the first things that were going up in the subway, mm-hmm. uh, and they, and it's interesting because the the way it worked is they'd have these big subway posters, and they would put black paper over them. If you rented a thing for a month, after the end of the month, they would p- cover them with black paper, and so you'd walk through the subway, and there'd be a few ads, and there'd be all these blacked out things, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this kid with white chalk would do like five or six things. It was just, it was amazing. And everyone on the subway just thought it was brilliant. Yeah. And they were funny, they were real, and everyone was wondering, who is this guy? Right. Um, and I was very envious. Then when Keith started showing, I remember having arguments with Glenn O'Brien. He was going, it's like Zen, man. He's like got a Zen thing. He can do it. Uh, he's, he's, he's got this you know, instantaneous uh, energy, he's great. And I was arguing with, with Glenn, going, I don't know if he's that great, Glenn. You know, I, <laughs> I, you know, I was still holding on. I was, you know, it wasn't, yeah. uh, didn't seem quite serious enough to me. Right. Then um, there was a big slab of concrete right outside the building that we were living in on Mott and Houston. Mm-hmm. And uh, Keith Herring did this mural on it. And I saw him work with a bunch of guys, and he and he did it in about uh, two days, mm-hmm. and um, it was great. And I was working on you know twenty foot paintings, and I was killing myself. You know, I would work for months and years on these paintings, yeah. and so this kid shows up with a with a beautiful Hispanic help. Boom! They made a really exciting painting, and I, I had to admit, you know. Um, it's pretty good. Pretty damn good. <laughs> and the same thing with uh, Basquiat. I, I couldn't believe that he, this kid could be so great. Yeah. And it was my first experience of seeing people younger than me uh, that were way ahead. Prodigious. Prodigious. Talents. I have, um, I have a drawing habit. I make drawings constantly. Mm-hmm. And I can look back at my notebooks and I can show you exactly the moment when I started seeing all these Basquiat drawings, oh, yeah. because one of my notebooks for about 30 pages looks like Basquiat. I just oh, really? I did Basquiat, and in the process of sort of copying what he was doing, I mean, I wasn't looking at his drawings, I was sort of doing his style, right. and it was great. And I looked at my notebook, and I went, oh my God, he really is, he really is something great. Yeah, he had um, that effect on you. Yeah. Did you see that show at uh, Gladstone of the... Of the Keith's the notebooks and all his drawings? Yes, yes. I mean, 
Anyone who's on the fence about that guy sees that show, and if you think that he didn't have it or that wasn't amazing, oh, he was just great. He's just great. I mean, that's just it. Was just poured from the guy. You know, I was really, and you know, some of them I rem- I saw all of his shows, and yeah. I remember there's one show at Shafrazi where they were doing all these giant vases and mannequins, and you know, it was floor to ceiling. There was like thousands of things in there, and I remember feeling that some of it wasn't so good. Yeah, and. You know, when you work that way, you're not always uh, great. But when he was on, he really was great. Yeah. There's a, um, it's now, it was a bathroom. It's now a meeting room in the Gay and Lesbian Center on 13th Street. Uh, And I used to go to groups there all the time. And um, we would meet in the, they had taken the old bathroom over. So we would meet in this Keith Haring uh, painted Mm -hmm. room. And it's so great. I mean, I've spent hours in that thing, and it's so funny, so good. Um, yeah, he was a great artist. And yeah. it, just a terrible thing, you know, that these people were all dying so fast. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I remember seeing him. Last time I saw him, he had um, Carposi's sarcoma lesions on his face. Uh-huh. And most uh, people that I knew that had that they would put makeup on or they would right. go out or whatever and i remember he was walking around and he wasn't he was just being honest yeah. about it and uh that was the last time i think i you know told him to keep up the good work or something yeah uh, but what a courageous extraordinary man yeah and it's it's it, interesting what you're saying about you know, when you when that much is coming out, you're gonna not all of it is gonna be amazing, or whatever. But I feel like it's that's part of it. It's just the um, the unleashing and like letting out of all this stuff. It's almost equally as impressive the scope and just the desire to just want to keep you know expressing constantly over like you know like in music, some people can just write the three minute pop song. And then there's like, you know, a dead show or something where they're playing for like a song for two hours. Right. There's going to be parts of that song where you're <laughs> right. maybe not- nodding off a little or getting, you know, going into your own thoughts or whatever. But it's that whole experience that becomes like this amazing thing, you know. And looking back at it, it becomes easier to see, I'm sure. Yes. I've seen some of these paintings on tarps that yeah. he did. And um, when you see them by themselves in a group show or you go to some art fair in Zurich and there's this one Keith Haring. Mm -hmm. Some of them really hold up. They're terrific. It's a performative thing. Right. So it's like you are DJing for four hours or you are... um, And you also got to understand that um, everybody was doing lots of coke and um, speed or whatever. um, That, uh, you know, I tried that where I... I worked for these truck drivers, and they were all on, uh, they had the Black Beauties, I mm-hmm. think. that they, yeah, yeah. So I would try that, you know, uh, take Black Beauties and draw all night. Yeah. And um, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> Energy. Energy. Right? But the thing is that I had been raised up with, like, de Koenig, Giacometti, this modernist tradition. And in that tradition... Um, one is revising. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the painters that I'm talking about, people like, let's say, Elizabeth Murray or Al Held or Bill Jensen, these people got to their best paintings by painting and repainting yeah. and repainting. So initially, when I'm confronted with someone like Herring, I didn't take it so seriously because I th- he wasn't 
you know, suffering and repainting his paintings. No edit button. No edit button yeah, at all. Just let it out. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, it actually took me, it was great for me, and it took me a while to realize that um, I was editing much too much. Yeah. And uh, it was better uh, for me to uh, make a lot of drawings, make a lot of paintings. Right. Um, so maybe, that was a great lesson of those. Of maybe those edit what you show, but just let it all come out. Right. Yeah. What's beautiful about that, maybe in hindsight it's easier to see is that it's just living yes like he it seems as though he was just encapsulated with living and it wasn't so much about okay i'm going to make this one really good or i'm going to hit the masterpiece it's just like this is all life is this expression and i'm just it's not about good or bad i'm just going to make it you know yes and the other thing that he's part of they they lumped him in with graffiti artists and neither one of them uh, Jean-Michel or or Keith were graffiti people that was its own world but you understand that's a thing that's all completely performative and it's really like in a kind of athletics it's like uh, these gangs of guys that go out there and um, people like Blade who is a great great painter Mm -hmm. Um, these guys that were first doing whole subway cars and this was a huge influence on me and all the artists that would admit it, um, that there was this fantastic painting going up on the streets of New York all over the place. And those guys, you know, you had to do something in three or four hours, yeah. and, and then maybe the police were going to chase you, and they were risking their lives, you know, balancing yeah. on the edges of buildings to make paintings. And um, so uh, that... You know, in the in that context, Herring had to do stuff. Uh, once he became famous, he wasn't dodging the police, but he'd be working on an outside wall, yeah. and he would um, show up and do something. Which it's it's. I mean, I guess you would have to be kind of fluid. You have, <laughs> you have to know what you're going to do. <laughs> you can't be dilly dallying on a billboard. You no, know, you got to know what you're doing. Right. Um, I mean, I think of somebody. Oh, who, who's like that today? Well, how about this uh, wonderful guy, Alex Katz? Yeah. He's about 200 years old now, bless him. <laughs> um, but this guy works uh, harder than anybody. It's amazing, And right? he, because he really knows what he's doing, he's got his style, he knows how to attack stuff. He's making so many paintings, really big paintings. Yeah. And, man, he's making terrific paintings. Yeah. And he isn't going back and repainting and taking it out. But, you know, he's... He, he he's making more paintings, better paintings than ever. A con- well, I mean, so you have would, to you have to know would, what you're doing. Yeah, and one would like to think that you've you've kind of earned a little bit of capital in your own like method of expression over the decades and decades that you're getting better at something. Yes, right? on one hand, you know what you're doing. Yeah, but I, I you know I wasn't it like Hoxie or someone who said that like oh, I didn't make a good piece of art until I was ninety or something. I don't know. Something like, <laughs> well, there's hope for all of us, right? <laughs> This idea that you know you you might be getting better at things as you get as you become more of a veteran of the process. Yes, that's not true for everyone, but uh, no, one it's, not. Does, it's definitely true for some people. Yeah, um, you could become stale in that process you, too. Yeah, you got to stay open. Yeah. Well, let's talk about your work. So, I, what? So, being bo- out of all that history and being born out of all those many different environments and growing up around museums and like you know the people that you were interested in. And then, you know, flirting with school for a little bit, but then sort of learning in the city. Like, what is your process? And I mean, I know you work really big a lot of times and you seem to be prolific. Um, Are you an editor 
nowadays? Like you said that you were doing that early on, or how do you approach your painting? What do you think about kind of like, you know, the activity of painting and what it means and how you go about it? Well, I think that about 10 years ago, I kind of had an opening in my own work, and um, I did two things. One was that I started a lot of paintings, mm-hmm. so I learned that what I needed to do was to have a lot of work in progress. Simultaneously. Simultaneously. And I was able to stock up lots of materials and lots of canvases, and that felt really great. Yeah. When you do that, if you're just working on three or four paintings and one of them starts looking weird, you put all this energy, like, what should I do with this one? This is an odd one. But when you're working on 50 paintings and you have something really odd, you go, well, I don't know what that is, but you can just leave it in the corner for a while. So it enables you to give birth to a lot of odd possibilities that you're not narrowing down. You're letting things go. Mm-hmm. And then, over the course of time, you see which paintings are finished and which come along. I have always made paintings over long periods of time. I've always gone back on my own work. And um, I have paintings, uh, I just finished a painting uh, last week that I started in 2003 I signed it in 2010 that was finished, and I've been looking at it for a few years going, there's something not quite there. And I was able to nail it. It's just such a great feeling. Yeah, and that's that's probably something a lot of paintings need, but out of space, time, needs, or whatever, a lot of people don't have that ability. It's true. I'm lucky to have this space filled with all this stuff so that I can keep these things around yeah that's the first luxury yeah and do you pull things do you hide them for a while and then pull them back oh, i out? have to hide them yeah i have to hide them i used to take paintings that were bugging me i would take them down to the cellar into the boiler room and mm-hmm. i would put them in the boiler room and then i could forget about them otherwise you keep looking it's like what am i going to do with this right. what am i going so you have to if there's a discipline it, it you you learn just not to ruin things right yeah that can away. be really distracting if you're trying to work on something else and that that pesky one is in the corner just absolutely <laughs> at you you know kind of it would take your i would for me it would probably take my concentration off no of for I'm instance doing. if i walk into your studio are most of the paintings face out are you looking at all yeah. your work oh okay you're one of those i am and i and i'm more of a work on one at a time kind of person because for me i'll start to use some of the the color in this one and that one and they'll start to bleed together and oh, okay. for me it's not a good thing like i i need to focus on that one and then get it and then move it and i'll keep it out and look at it but you have the others out that are finished yeah because for me a lot of like when i'm working towards something a lot of the dialogue of the paintings is the connection between them this is true so especially with narrative content if the landscapes or if there's some you know whatever it is you know, there, there's there's a real, there's content in between paintings for me, which when I'm thinking about showing them, usually I have this idea for the show, you know. I've, I've, right. I've had a hard time in the last 15 years of not pinning things down to a certain idea. It's just the way that I think but about it. But you need to have them all up. Yeah, I kind, of, I kind of like let, see how they look together and conceptually, you know, 
you can plan things out, but until you see them working together, you can get a feel for like, okay. Oh, I cannot do that. I mean, I have a friend, Bill Jensen. He, oh, you go to a studio, all the paintings are looking at you. Yeah, yeah. If I want to work on a painting, I usually have to turn every other painting <clears throat> away. Yeah. yeah I, can, um, I can see that, but for me, it doesn't bother uh, for, uh, It doesn't bother me. Unless, like you're saying, one of those paintings is a pain in the butt painting. And yeah, you I see, gotta, if I had them all up, I'd be thinking about, I'd work on all of them. You uh-huh. know what else I'm afflicted by? <laughs> if there's a little something wrong with a painting, I want to fix it immediately. So I, I, it, it would be hard for me to like put it away. Because exactly. Because then I feel, it's this weird, this is weird too. I'll, if I take a break from a painting for a while, I'll get disconnected from it. I'll feel disconnected. It's kind of like if I didn't hang out with my son for a few months and then I came back, I'd feel a little... <laughs> Why, how he's changed. Well, paintings are that way. I think that, uh, you know, try dragging a painting out that's a dog that you that was five years ago and it's still a dog and you, you know you want to do something to it, but, oh, but what? Yeah. And um, oddly, I'd feel like the, maybe not in a bad way, but the developments that I made in the last five years... Or the way that I'm approaching making images now is going to be slightly different than what it was five or ten years ago. That it's just going to kind of look like now, added to then. Yeah, so a lot of times I'll date a painting for ten years, but basically I made the painting the last seven hours. Yeah. It's just the same canvas that I've been dragging around. But it is an impressive dateline. <laughs> I worked so hard. Look at this. 13 years on that son of a... He really worked it. Well, I um, was raised on stories of Gorky and de Koenig, you know, repainting things and having a thing almost there, scraping it out, redoing it. And I thought this was a great way to, um, to learn about painting. Right. And my brief art education... Uh, the people were obsessed with Giacometti. And again, mm-hmm. it's the same thing, painting, repainting. He's famous. He can't finish anything. And I think when I first met Glenn, you know, I was into this romance, so I can't finish anything. Oh, the struggle. The struggle. I'm really suffering. I am so yeah, yeah, serious yeah. that I can't finish anything. Right. And so then, I mean, it was great for me to then see this kid, Keith Herring, right. who seemed like just a kid, and he comes out and he paints this huge wall on Houston Street, and it's terrific. Yeah. And he did it in two days. Well, like Alex Katz, who knocks one out in 24 hours, well, that's like 19 feet long. And yeah, like, you go into a studio and there's like 20 new paintings there. See, that to me, uh, man, I love that. It's kind of like uh, like Ikebana. Do you know the Japanese like floral arrangements? Where it's so simple and pure, but there's all the learning you did up to that point informs the way that you're going to make these very simplistic, kind of like formal... Um, you know, uh, for me, I guess I'm... I'd, I enjoy that kind of confidence and the the kind of that struggle justifying it. I don't know why, but for me, it's always been like a problem where I don't feel like I need to have to go through that struggle because I did in school. Like I went through, I made these paintings that were really long and arduous and like I did these number grids. I was like, you cannot deny I worked really hard on this painting. Exactly. Yeah. And then I got out of school. I went to Skowhegan and a lightning bolt hit a tree and I was like, that's what I want to paint. I, I uh, think you're on a good on you're on the good track here, Brian. Don't okay. That's good. <laughs> no need to suffer. I mean, I remember talking to Alex about it, and he said um, I was agonizing and talking about this process. And he went, "Well, you know, sometimes they get a really good cats. Sometimes it's a it's an okay yeah, cats. Yeah. You know, it's like some days he's playing great tennis. Sometimes he's 
you know, his execution is, uh, but he's such a pro. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, is it? Like, how many oh, no, records listen, have you heard where all 10 tracks no, are come amazing? On. And Dylan's like touring everywhere, and sometimes it's an amazing concert, yeah. sometimes the band's okay. That's life, right? Yeah, that's life. I, I agree. And I'm, I'm, uh, well, I've always been able to accept that in drawings and yeah. works on paper. And so I think for a long time, people were telling me my drawings were better because I was fearless. And if you make something really ugly, you just throw it away. It's a piece of paper. So you're willing to do things and you're willing to call things finished. Yeah. You go, that's, that's what it is. It's less on the line in a drawing. Exactly. So, um, but so about 10 years ago, I, um, kind of started to get things together and I learned to bring a lot more parts of myself into the paintings. I made a lot more paintings and I opened my practice up Mm -hmm. so that I could paint different kinds of imagery. I could use different mediums so that I was doing a lot of things simultaneously. And that to me finally was a natural state. Yeah. Um, How was the, was the uh, response did it change at all, or? Oh, the response was really good. Yeah. Because and this, I did this partially because I had a big show coming up. In a way, my first real breakout show was in two thousand and eight, I think, at mm-hmm. Mitchell Innes and Nash. Yeah. Working with Jay Gorney there, the director, and um, so I, I was I was confident, I was excited, and um, I was good then. I was good then. Yeah, yeah. It, it was like a, a good timing. It was good timing. And also I think that I, you know, I'd been in this camp of the serious abstractionists. Yeah. And I gradually started to let things go inside my practice. So I started, uh, when, and at that point I started deliberately doing things that were not, uh, this paintings were stretched badly or I was cutting holes in the paintings or I was collaging uh, all kinds of things into the paintings. I started working with uh, bits of food mm-hmm. on paintings. I started sticking banana peels. Uh, everything in my life and my studio practice just started coming into the paintings. Um, around that time, James Brown died, and I was surprisingly moved uh, about that, that I felt really sad about it. And I had all these James Brown records and I went and I took all his records and I started gluing them into the paintings. So, um, a lot of, I just started bringing my life into my work. That feels good, doesn't it? It feels great. And the other thing was I started, um, uh, bringing a lot of humor Mm -hmm. into the paintings. The not so serious abstraction. Yeah, well, I, then I started to realize that the paintings that I loved, like I would see a great de Kooning and I would laugh. Or <laughs> yeah. you see a really goofy late Gustin, and I would right. laugh. It's not like you're laughing, at, you know, at, at, at Jimmy Kimmel's monologue. It's a different kind of laughter, right. but it's a laughter. It's something kind of absurd and crazy. Yeah. <clears throat> so I realized that was, my, I would recognize that in the paintings that I was most excited by and I started letting more of that energy into my own work around that time Peter Atchison and I were having these long discussions about painting and I was meeting um, Joe Bradley Mike Williams um, Catherine Bernhardt 
and these younger painters, Brian Ballot, and they had a great irreverence about abstraction, and they were sort of approaching minimal painting from this funny, goofy, really mm-hmm. brilliant place, and that helped me a lot. But I remember Peter Atchison and I uh, talking about the idea of making not just the good paintings, or trying to make good paintings, but we would try to make, quote-unquote, all the paintings. So if there was a part of me that wanted to make really sappy something, I would make those paintings. Mm-hmm. If there was a part of me that made um, you know, very serious heart, I'd make those. But I would make all the other ones too. Right. Um, I remember once we were down in my basement and I had pulled out this painting. It looked like we were laughing. It looked like a bad Miro painting. It looked like, like a Miro painting knockoff that you would buy on the streets of Paris and like, 1950 or something you know it looked like this bad parisian abstraction and peter was saying that and we were just laughing going that's that's exactly what this painting looks like so instead of being embarrassed and changing the painting i at that point i was going this is my bad miro yeah this is my like cheesy french whatever so i started recognizing parts of my work without judging it so harshly and letting more of it all live. Right. Um, And also I think that um, our friend Kathy Bradford, she was very much part of this dialogue. Uh And um, we used to all go to each other's studios, Peter, Kathy, and I. And we would invariably, I'd go to Kathy's studio and I'd go in the back and I would pull out these paintings that she thought were ugly or childish or unfinished. Mm -hmm. And often Peter and I would say, Kathy, this is our favorite one. This is a really funny painting. And she would do the same thing for us sometimes. So we also started realizing everybody has paintings in their studio that are the embarrassing paintings. And uh, so we had this whole mission that we were going to make all the embarrassing paintings, (laughs) keep all the embarrassing paintings. Um, Because the first thing that comes up when we're looking at our own paintings as a kind of taste yeah like that's that's embarrassing that's that's a you know i'm chris martin i can't make something that yeah does that make the me cut right exactly (laughs) you know is that good (laughs) enough for me me. (laughs) and i started thinking well is it bad enough for me is this um so and also uh josh smith's whose work was getting out a lot and there was um i was having conversations with friends of mine who were really serious painters, good painters, and they were outraged uh, about Josh Smith's first shows. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it caused a lot of people going, he's not a real painter, he's just blah, blah, blah. And um, Peter and I thought they were really good. And so that was also a real inspiration. But the really good was kind of the the freedom in it, the unedited, or sort of the the looseness of not the actual painting, but the looseness of... These are my paintings, right? Yes, but then or did you look I, at them and you're like, these are gorgeous paintings? Well, the funny thing is, I started seeing them in context. I had a friend that had this one Josh Smith up on his wall, and you know, he had all this great art in his apartment, and like it held up. Yeah. So I started thinking, wait a minute, it's not just that he's got this shtick where he makes a hundred paintings. Yeah. Um, the good ones are really good. Yeah. So. Um, uh, Peter, I remember, talked about Josh. He said, when we were, there, there was a, uh, a freshman painting class in college. And, and um, he would go back and he would see these freshmen make a terrific painting. 
Now, they don't realize it's right, any right. good because they, they don't know. It's their third painting or something. But that kind of quality of yeah. like, this is really good. Now, I can't explain to you why this is so good. It'll just confuse you, you know? Yeah. You can't. But so for us, we would say these are qualities that we are looking for. Yeah. The kind of spontaneous humor. That's a hard moment, isn't it? Those are those are very complicated situations for a professor. When you see someone very early on who bump into like this amazing moment, but you know it was totally not intended. Right. How do you? How do you do that? Well, I the other part of this whole uh, thing that had influenced me was I worked as an I was always interested in quote unquote outsider art. Mm-hmm. I hate that term. But I worked as an art therapist for about 16 years Mm -hmm. full-time, rec therapist, whatever, working with a population of men and women with uh, AIDS, uh, mental illness, drug addiction, and, and, and so many problems. But these people were just extraordinarily interesting people, and we had a lot of fun, actually. And I used to make lots of art in day treatment settings and residential settings, hospitals, whatever. And I used to save some of the paintings. But I learned that some, somebody would make a painting at Rivington House, where I worked for nine years. And initially, I would say, this is terrific. And they were puzzled, because this was the first painting they'd made since they got out of prison, you know. <laughs> right. And so they knew they weren't any good. And so initially, they're thinking, why is Chris hustling me? You know, mm-hmm. what's, what's Chris, you know, why is he saying this? So I learned that that wasn't a good thing. I might be privately thinking, this is a fantastic right. painting. Right, don't let that out. But I would just go, uh, you know, I would go, hey, this is really interesting. Maybe you want to make another one. So I learned that I couldn't uh, lay that kind of praise on people. It would, would not be understood. Right, because your metric for what a good painting is is totally different than their metric. Exactly. Like they're working towards this, well, I want to, usually, I want to try to get better at something and I want to work towards this looking like that or getting the colors to speak a certain way. And you're probably more so thinking there's something really free in this and beautiful in the way that this is coming out and that and you're kind of basing that in a way off of your normal practice in the way that you're making your work and there's something like really raw and great in here that i try to get my work right so that's why it's a great they're trying to get some basic level of mastery so they feel i can shade it so it looks like a horse or something and i'm responding to all the other qualities of you know truth humor beauty self-expression yeah I have that same thing with my kid all the time, especially when he was younger, where he would do, you know, be like six years old, make a painting. I'm like, man, you nailed it. And he's just like, what? <laughs> you know, you know what my I mean? own children influenced me very much. There was a period when we made paintings together. Yeah. And they always made me look bad. <laughs> uh, and at one point, <clears throat> this was the same time that Peter and I were having these discussions. His youngest daughter, Isabel was about 10 and she was making great art she was yeah. painting on the sidewalks making great paintings and peter used to we used to talk about isabel as the master yeah. that we were students of isabel and um uh, he was always sending me pictures of isabel's latest painting i would go up to his house and there would be these great works so that was a serious challenge for us a serious um um cha- uh inspiration yeah but I, I think that, you know, so I had all these books. I, I've been studying art for all this time. So what does it mean when someone just comes and makes a great painting 
without the uh, quote-unquote education. Yeah. They haven't been to the museums. They don't know who all these people are. Um, but they're able to express themselves in a fresh and profound way. And, I, you know, if there's a party and they put on James Brown, everybody gets up to dance. Um, no one's saying, I, don't, I didn't study dance. Uh, right. And some people are great dancers. And if they're uh, really feeling a lot of love, they it's, you know they dance fantastically. Yeah. But most people, if you say, can you paint? <clears throat> people say, no, I, I don't know. I never was taught how to paint. So this is one art form where there's this curious, um, huge kind of heavy burden that the society somehow takes away everyone's freedom. Everyone yeah. should be making their own paintings. Right. And and people don't because they feel they don't know how. Yeah. In fact, they know that they have no talent. I remember a teacher telling me um, in the third grade, she would ask her class, how many people here are artists? And everyone in the class raises their hand. Uh-huh. And by eighth grade, you say, how many people in the class here are artists? And like the two weird guys in the back row maybe ninth grade, still raise their hands. But people realize, no, 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 that's not, uh, I don't want to embarrass myself or expose myself by making uh, paintings. This is a great example of like why life, (laughs) why life ends up sucking because (laughs) everything is This is where the podcast turns dark, (laughs) ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, you might want to turn up. No, this is where, you know, it's when you're young, you're unencumbered by the world. You know, all that, the heaviness of all the tasks and menial, whatever, all the restrictions, all that stuff that, you know, we as creative adults usually are trying to spend our whole life reverting back to that time. Yes. And capturing that. That's like that's kind of the essence of life in a way, and that's and it kind of gets squeezed out over year after year with like you know becoming an adult and doing all the the things yes. that you need to do, and and you know some see it as a responsibility, and some see it as you know just trying to be unencumbered by the the minutia of our daily lives and what information has become to us. But I, I think it's such a beautiful moment, you know, that when kids are at that or when you're not crushed yet by... <laughs> oh, absolutely. I remember I would have my two kids, they would come over here, uh, I'd have them on weekends, and we would sit down, I would put out paint, and I would be setting us up. We'd all make some paintings. Yeah. And before I was setting myself up, they had each made a painting. They would just start, finish, right. painting, done. And I, I would go, my God, they just made a really beautiful painting, and I'm kind of gearing myself up to right. work. So that's the... You know, they're in the garden. They're just there. I know. It's... But, you know, painting, the art world that we are in is particularly fucked up in that regard. That's true. If I ask a bunch of uh, graduate students in painting, and I, I always like to ask them this, I say, isn't it a miracle that there are no graduate schools for rock and roll or rap, and yet the music doesn't die? You know, they're all, you know, in music... People, they, they don't feel like, I will study the guitar, you know, for 10 years, and then maybe I'll start being creative. Right. They just say, let's let's start. I got, I'm, I'm 18 years old. I got shit to say, man. Yeah. And they write songs, and they make great, great art sometimes. But people are all um, doing it. They're making their own work. Whereas in painting, somehow the society 
has really fucked with everyone's head. Right. And everyone believes, I don't know how to paint. Yeah, I don't have the right to paint. The quote-unquote art world we're talking about builds its capital on elitism or, or exactly. you know, exclusion. And, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like value. Whereas in music, it's, I mean, you, you don't get into music to sell music, really, to be honest. You get in music probably because you, you know, heard the Ramones or Public Enemy and you're like, I want to do that. Exactly. <laughs> and that is like so healthy. That's work. the way it should be. Yeah. Um, I think that in the world of graffiti and uh, street painting, there's a lot of that. Yeah. These people are going straight to street painting when they're like teenagers. Yep. And uh, it's its own world. It doesn't really uh, coincide with the gallery world. And they do this stuff basically for free. They put it out there. There's tremendous respect and a real hierarchy within that community. Yeah. But um, they're not asking for um, you know rich people to validate them. Right. Uh, and so that's very, very healthy. We're in a very peculiar uh, kind of art form. Yeah, there's something beautiful and amazing about it, but yeah, it, sometimes that that is a real big hurdle in the process. I yeah. think. Whereas, you know, I say it on this podcast all the time because we talk about a music a lot. Music, it's like it comes out of the speaker and hits your ear, and you feel it. You know, and it's not, you know, I don't have to listen to uh, John Lee Hooker and put it through the filter of you know Beethoven and whatever else. You know what I mean? You just you kind of feel it, and and it speaks to you. And it, it has less of that. I mean, there is a beauty in art of the dialogue with art history and that language. And, you know, I think a lot of people who, like you were saying before, say, well, I'm not an artist. You know, it's like they don't really know that language that well. So they feel like, well, I can't really speak in that language because I haven't gone through the education of it. And in, in the way that someone's like, how many people in here are, you know, automobile designers? Right. Like, well, they know, well, I got to go to school for that. I have to learn how to do that. I can't do that. You know, I think art for some reason pushes closer to that kind of metric as opposed to the music. Well, I just feel it and I paint it, which is weird because art, like you're saying with kids, it's one of the most primal things. Like if you put painting in front of a kid, like who's one, they're going to start moving the paint around. Absolutely. <laughs> you know? I, I can remember there was a time my wife and I were briefly, uh, what were we, we were called, uh, artists and residents up at Dartmouth College. Oh, yeah. And uh, they would have these things called draw-a-thons where there would be like 24 hours of, of people getting together to draw. But so it was like there was, you know, alcohol and there was music. And I remember uh, Max brought all these football players in to the draw-a-thon. Mm -hmm. And these guys made the best paintings. Oh, yeah. You know, they'd have a few beers and they'd start making paintings. And I was just saying, oh, okay, stop. I'll give you another piece of paper. That's right, a great right. one, That's you know. And, and they were just <laughs> making the most terrific paintings. But I think you put your finger on it. It's built on this exclusive idea yeah. that that's how there's value. Right. And that you can't have this exclusive thing um, because nobody really knows what's a good painting. Um, the public sorts out pretty quickly what's a great piece of music. Yeah. Um, sometimes it takes a while, but usually people can say, hey, that's, that's a great song. Who's that? Who's singing that? Whereas with painting, because people fear that there's no real standards, they go out of their way to say, well, I have a master's degree, and uh, yeah. let me tell you about the serious ideas here. Right. And uh, we, don't, um, we don't give a shit when it's something on the radio. Yeah. Um, for all of you listening to this 
droning two guys droning on you can also just go to the music right now <laughs> cut to the music <laughs> no it's it's the great art form of our time is yeah. um is music and everyone's uh hearing it you know there's live music which is incredible but then everybody is now listening to music yeah. when they're cleaning the floor making a painting driving um we're, we're always uh hearing it's great hearing music it's great it's music is a great thing. Do you, when you're working, do you listen to music when you're painting or, uh, I mean, you have a pretty busy studio. There's a lot of action going on. How, how are you with working? Well, today it's busy because yeah. there's people on Mondays and Tuesdays, but, uh, here I have a big, a bunch of big speakers and I play, I yeah, play I music. Yeah, I a PA speaker in there. It's pretty. Sizable. Yeah, I can really blast the, the, the neighbors can complain, but <laughs> upstate I haven't put my sound system in. I have a big studio there and I actually enjoy the silence. Um, it kind of fits. Different. It, it, it fits, it's, it's, right? it, it can work both ways. Yeah. Um, particularly if there's something I have to do um, that's kind of uh, not particularly creative work, yeah. but physical work, right. then music is great. Yeah. It gives you this great energy. Yeah. Um, and what kind of, I mean, are you... What do I listen to? Yeah, I mean... You know, I'm a 60-year-old guy. I still listen to old Motown. I listen to Dylan. I listen to... um, Lately, I've been into T-Bone Burnett. I've been into Rasta stuff, the Congos. Yeah, yeah. Um, Do you like dub? Do you listen to a lot of dub? A little bit, you know. um, You should give me... People give me music. Oh, I can So so then, and that, that helps me a lot. They go, Chris, listen to this. Yeah. Um, yeah, I wonder, you know, I wondered, I mean, were you into, you know, Philip Glass and Luke Ferrari or things like that? Or did you get into classical or I was public I, enemy? NWA, well, I, stuff I, like I, when I got to New York in the seventies, um, I listened to a lot to Philip Glass, particularly Steve Reich. Was yeah. My favorite. Oh, yeah, I went up to a lot of concerts. Did you see the drumming concerts? No, but I've seen... Let's see, 18 musicians performed like two or three times. So yeah. That was a great thing. You really got here at a good music time. All the I mean, stuff you probably had Zorn playing on the streets. You know, uh, <laughs> he was across the street. That's when uh, yeah. Knitting Factory was across the street. But also Meredith Monk. I was a huge uh, Meredith yeah. Monk fan. In fact, my daughter Meredith is partially named after oh, Meredith cool. Monk. And a friend of mine, Don Voisin, is a wonderful painter. Mm-hmm. He worked for Meredith for years. So I used to go to rehearsals, and I used to see her stuff all the time. She had a big impact on me. Um, so that whole uh, avant-garde yeah. uh, scene, um, there was a guy that lived in my building. And when I first came to New York, I was kind of terrified. It was this beautiful... African-American guy who wore leather and he had two big German shepherds and I, I figured he was some kind of a drug dealer or some scary guy. Uh-huh. He lived uh, on the, like the fourth or fifth floor and I was scared to talk to him and I went to a Meredith Monk concert of Dolman music and he was playing the cello <laughs> and I remember afterwards they said oh and next week we're doing the work of Julius Eastman you know, uh-huh. he, the composer Julius right. Eastman and I went oh my god you know were the dogs there uh the dogs were not there no. <laughs> and then shortly afterwards he left the building but I I remember thinking wow so you know anybody in New York yeah uh especially in that building half the people were really great I serious. mean you're probably there doing something 
If yes, you're in that exactly. Area, you know what I mean? You're probably up to something, or else wouldn't you be somewhere else? <laughs> yeah, I, th- I thought he was, he just looked so scary to me. Um, and he turned out to be just this incredibly sweet musical genius. Don't uh, judge a book. Yeah, don't judge a book. Um, <laughs> and he, he died. He had a difficult life, but now uh, his family and friends are bringing his music back, and I thought about him the other That's day. Cool. So all of that was going on. I remember hanging out with the people from television. Yeah. I remember that guy Glenn Branca made those yeah. long things. So there was also this crossover between the avant-garde world and the rock world. Yeah. The lounge lizards, I thought, were oh, really, yeah. they were so great. John Lurie. Yeah. I used to see those people around, um, and they were all so cool. I mean, I, I was not cool then. I was kind of shy, but they were you they just, were very cool. You were watching. I was watching. I remember John Lurie, he would walk into the Kiev restaurant like he owned the place, and yeah. he'd go like, there's John Lurie, you know. There, well, he... He's a kind of stature and personality. It seems like he could really carry a room. Yeah, and he had a sneer. He always had yeah. this kind of sneer on his face. Right. And um, man, he's great in those Jarmusch movies, though, isn't he? Oh, totally great. I, I still those hold up. I love those. They movies. totally. I used to see Jarmusch all the time down at the pizza parlor on uh, Mott Street. Yeah. Um, and they see David Byrne around. Um, I don't know if I said much to these people, but right. you're right. The downtown world, there was great stuff happening. Yeah. Uh, rents were cheap. You could come to New York. You could work three days a week, make a living, and you could do crazy stuff. Yeah. Um, and you did, I imagine you bought this place. We came here in 1984. Yeah. I was in Williamsburg in 1980. Kathy Bradford and I rented a whole building uh-huh. on Driggs Avenue. And uh, there was one pizza parlor and one Polish restaurant in the whole neighborhood. Uh-huh. The L train, I was still living on Houston uh, next to Glenn. And the L train at 11 or 12 midnight would be absolutely empty. I would wait in the platform to take the train back to Manhattan. And I would be the only person on the platform. It's that amazing was. that it's still like that today. <laughs> When my wife texts me and she's like, I just watched the fourth train go by and I can't get into one of these damn trains. If you had told me that would happen or that there would even be a Japanese restaurant, we would have laughed uproariously. So things have changed. Um, But anyway, we were able uh, to to get my my first wife, Karen Gustafson, uh, was a lawyer. So we went to a bank. We Mm -hmm. were able to buy this building for very little. Good move. And it really helped. Yeah. I was very lucky to have a space. Right. Um, well, especially because it seems so perfectly fit for what you're doing. You know what I mean? Like, Well, I've been here long enough, and it's yeah. filled with so much junk that... Um, oh, and good art, too. Yes. That's Thornton Dial here. Yeah. Joyce, Joyce Pensado. Jonas. Jonas. Joe Bradley. Um, Mike Williams. Brian Balot. Um, oh, God, I'm blanking on this guy. Um, oh, Ava Hess's first husband, the great, oh, my God. I don't know that. Great San Francisco uh, <laughs> having a senior moment. Um, yeah, it's nice to work, to live with other people's Yeah, uh, definitely. Work. I, it was one of the, I, it was just a moment where, uh, you know, probably like 12 or 13 years ago where I think I made my first trade. I forget who it was with, but I s- traded artwork and I sat there and I was like, oh, this is amazing. 
And it was the smartest thing, you know, just trading work. Trading I have more is art than I have space to hang, but I love it. It's like I've built all this work and it's the nice thing is like I know the people and you know yes. it's such a great feeling. And to live with art is very important to it, be able to I'd live really, with something for a long time. I believe some it. things really hold up. Some things your your first love changes. Upstairs we it's filled with uh all these trades from yeah. so many years. Um it's a, yeah, it's it's nice to be around. I never traded with Basquiat. I was a fool. <laughs> There's always going to be that one, right? There's always going to be that one person where you're like, "Damn, I should have made that trade happen." Oh. But, I remember once uh he used to make these huge drawings, and I ran into him uh in the basement of Manhattan Art. And we spent the afternoon on a couch. I was very impressed. He could he had a a whole bottle of whiskey that he could drink, so I'm not a drinker. And um, we were looking at this giant drawing, and I remember just thinking that drawing just got better and better all yeah. afternoon. And um, that's, that's the why I didn't think to disappeared. like <laughs> grab something. <laughs> oh but man! But bless him. But he 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 he's continually inspires me. Yeah. Um, so what uh, for people who are interested in your? I mean, you just had a show that came down. A really great show, but what do you have stuff coming up? Um, or is your, your show's a, it, has it run? Its it course? just finished at Anton Kern. Yeah. I actually have absolutely nothing coming nice. up. I mean, group shows. Doesn't but, that feel uh, good though? It's a great, a, a great feeling. Yeah, and I'm lucky. I can pay the bills. I'm going to go up to the Catskills this summer and nice. um, just wander around, work. Yeah. Um, it's very exciting to work for a show, yeah. And it focuses the mind, and you you, you get you, you really you work hard because you know you're going to be on stage. You don't want to embarrass yourself in front of all of New York. It gets you uh, gets you a lot of energy. The other ha- on the other side, it's great to have this break where you where I can work uh, in a less focused yeah. way, just play around. Yeah, See that's where it like goes. the incubator period is nice. Yes. Until someone calls you up and is like, all right, work on these dates. <laughs> exactly. Like, oh, I'm not going to turn it down. All right. But yeah, that is a nice feeling, right? I, I mean, think. I think about these bands like the Beatles, the fact that they were performing so much, and then they were writing, or someone like Dylan, he's just uh, he's constantly performing. And uh, I guess he had times when he, when he went up to the country yeah. and uh, would focus more on writing. Yeah, but just immersion. They were just immersed in it for, you know, decades. Well, he's still going. He's still going. You know, the Beatles were just like... They were in it. Yeah, I guess... I mean, I think as artists, we, as painters, we envy that. I wish that, um, you know, it'd be like three guys come over here and we we do the work together. That would be an amazing thing. Right. Yeah. and then maybe everyone gets on each other's nerves after a while. But that idea of collaborating, yeah, I envy that. I still, I do it. I made it part of my work because once my band, like once we stopped playing, you know, I went through years and years of being in the studio by myself and it got, you know, lonely, basically. And lonely, not personally, but lonely in the sense of like, I'm just being creative. I'm just doing my work. And then, you know, I was fortunate enough to start doing animation and working with musicians, but I love that collaborative process. I think it's, I think more artists should do it for fun, like shows where it's like a collaborative painting or something, you know. I've done little bits of it, but no, nothing like being in a band or performing at the group. Well, I tell you, you know, 
syncing up those ske- practice schedules and stuff, though, that gets old really quick. <laughs> <laughs> like, There's a great Lounge Lizard song with Lurie where he goes to this party and it's his band uh-huh. playing. And he had called them that day going, we've got to have a rehearsal. And they're going, oh, we're kind of busy. We're kind of busy. Yeah. He goes to this friend's party and it's his band doing a gig. <laughs> you go, what the fuck? It's a hysterical song. Yeah. It's this long song. Yeah. Um, well, I think when you do a printmaking, I get a sense of that. Yeah, where you're, you're there and there are people helping you with the yeah, technical nice. and they bring you a cup of coffee and right. um, that's, that can be very stimulating. Yeah. Um, but it is tough to go into a room by yourself yeah. for hours. It is. Um, yeah, so I'm looking forward to some time. Know. Taking time, driving yeah. around, see so friends. People can see your work online, of course. They can, and um, you know, I'll have work in art fairs and in some. There's a group show coming up. Um, oh, I can't remember the name of the gallery, so I can't mention that. I'll edit it in at the end. It's about uh, something about marijuana. Anything about marijuana and uh-huh. people's work. I'm putting something in that. I'm doing a show in Switzerland. I'm sending some paintings there. Mm-hmm. We're wrapping those up. Um, so paintings do get out. Are you uh, unencumbered by social media? <laughs> well, you know, uh, I haven't mentioned uh, my wife, Tamara Gonzalez, who's uh-huh. um, a great artist, and she uh, is on social media. So yeah. I often look over her shoulder, right. and she shows me what's on Instagram gotcha. or whatever. And uh, the artists who work with me here, Andrea Burgard, Kerry Cholnaki, Max Heigis, Dante uh, Lentz, they are all, uh, obviously, and they, there's a Kunstmartin um, account on whatever this is, Twitter, Instagram. Oh, something. yeah. So nice. th- they do post things for me. Oh, cool. Um, but I've been, I never got on Facebook. Yeah. And... Um, it's not like I'm proud of this. It just didn't quite hey, you, happen. You got a lot more time on your hands because of that. <laughs> it's fine. Well, well, just doing email and then text messages, and it seems uh, that there's plenty. Yeah. Uh, You're not missing much. <laughs> to do. Well, I, I look on Instagram, and it looks fabulous, you know, just to see these images going by. It's fantastic. Yeah. I'm always saying to Tamara, um, hey, wait, who's that? What's that? Right, right. <laughs> She's going, why don't you get your own again? Yeah. <laughs> Leave mine alone. <laughs> well, uh, well, thanks for having me over. It's a pleasure. It was great to meet you. Keep painting. It was great to Making talk. music. Likewise. Thanks Later. A lot. As always, Sound and Vision is recorded, produced, and edited by myself, Brian Alfred. You can find out more about the podcast on the website, soundandvisionpodcast.com, or Instagram, at soundandvisionpodcast. You can check out more about my work at brianalfred.net, or on Instagram at alfredstudio. Thanks to Evan Marion for the intro-outro music, Michael Lovett for the introduction and his intro music. If you can support the podcast, please go to iTunes, leave a review, a rating, subscribe, tell a friend, post an image, tag the podcast, get the word out. Also want to give a shout out to Emily Burns, who is one of the only people who have had a hand in this podcast in some 
way, shape, or form other than myself and the musicians who make the music and the artists and musicians that I speak to. Emily did the graphic design for the podcast. She did the logo. And uh, make sure you check out her work. And she also does Make Magazine, which is M-A-A-K-E, which is a great magazine. It features a lot of great artists. So make sure you check that out as well. All right, thanks. 2020 It's going to be filled with a lot more good conversations. So please keep tuned. And thank you for your support for the podcast.